RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 7, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Science Memos from Gene Roddenberry. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Yes, all of our background fans, you Star Trek historians, you canonistas, I say that lovingly, and of course, our Trekophiles, spelled with an F. Hey, we have a wonderful show this week. We're going to delve into the realm of science. Uh, you'll see what I mean. We've got a special guest, and of course, as always, the documents we're talking about this week are right there on our Facebook page, so please go find those on the Facebook page at The Trek Files. Meanwhile, here's a sample, and then be right back with this week's guest. It appears to me that we have lately tended to let science technical advice dictate the shape and drama of a number of aspects of our show. Certainly, we do want science authenticity or plausibility wherever possible. However, the entertainment value of the show can be compromised when we let science advice dictate the look and feel and emotion of drama. All right, yes, science. Science and Star Trek, we're so wrapped up talking about the fictional canon. You know, one of the hallmarks of Star Trek is its, at least its attempt to delve into the, to the real science. And, of course, science sometimes evolves as over 53 years of a franchise. These are all great topics to get into. We've got snapshots here from the motion picture era, 1978, 1979. And that's why I'm so excited this week to have a guy who came to Star Trek, well, as a fan, <laughs> but as a science consultant for Next Generation, Next Generation science consultant for Season 7 throughout DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, although... Actually, by that time, he'd risen to the rank of a freelance writer, co-producer on Enterprise. You should also know he was consulting producer on Cosmos, uh, developer and co-executive producer on the Mars series, and now co-executive producer on the Orville. Who else could I be talking about but the great Andre Bormanis? Andre, thank you for joining us on the Trek Files. It is my pleasure, Larry. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> well, I, and I know your, your eyes lit up when you saw these documents. Um, we, we're, we're back in the motion picture era, and I just love saying the guy's name, Jesko von Puttkammer. <laughs> yes. He was a NASA engineer and scientist who helped Gene a lot with the uh, you know, scientific concepts in um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. I, I look at this memo, and it's amazing. To Robert Wise, one of the greatest directors of all time, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the uh, 25th anniversary screening of mm -hmm. Star Trek The Motion Picture at uh, on the Paramount lot when we were doing Enterprise, which was amazing. And I also noticed the date of this memo. It's almost exactly 15 years prior to when I started as the science consultant on the final season of Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's it's like, wow, who'd have thunk? You know, I remember seeing Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, when it was released, I was, you know, one of those guys standing at the front of the line waiting for an hour and two hours, whatever, uh -huh. to get in there. And uh, never would have imagined that I would have anything to do with any kind of uh, Star Trek uh, series or production. Was a huge fan of the original growing up, of course. And, uh, and uh, you know, I still pinch myself to think that, wow, I, I, got to, I, got to, I got to work on this for 12 years, in fact. 
Well, we should we should say you you this was in the Phoenix Tucson area yes. you were talking about. Did, yeah. that, born and raised there. Uh, born in Chicago, grew up in okay. Phoenix, went to college in Tucson, and I was a sophomore, junior in college, majoring in physics when. Uh, oh, oh wait! Came you out. really have bona fides with the, on a piece <laughs> well, of paper for all this. I have some. What a I coincidence! Some. Yeah, some, yeah. Some, some some basic training. Yes. <laughs> No, that's it. well. This is this is a great entree. We're talking about the motion picture, but you know, start again. Uh, as opposed to all the other franchises out there that are wonderful mm-hmm. storytelling and aspirational, right. uh, Star Trek is the one that, from the inception, Harvey P. Lynn. If you read your memos in the making of Star Trek at the Rand Corporation yeah, that, that Gene was talking to back in the early days, in the in the mid sixties. And he kept up that tradition uh, here. Uh, Yesco for the motion mm-hmm. picture, various various science advisors, Next Generation, famously Farouk El Baz. They named a shuttle yes. shuttle pod after um, a friend. Narain Shankar was science advisor. Yes, and then gave way to uh, yeah. That's how I that's how I got the job. <laughs> Narain was uh, promoted to the writing staff, and so there was an opening. And and in fact, it's it's a. It's a long story. I don't know how interesting a story it is, but, you know, I'd written a Star Trek The Next Generation spec script. No. Uh, two or three seasons into Next Gen and uh, submitted it. A friend of mine's dad used to golf with Maurice Hurley, who was one of the producers on the show. So somehow they got it to him. And, and uh, you know, this is back when Star Trek had an open submission policy. Right. And so I'd written this spec. I was, you know, this was in the late 80s. And... Um, I got a very nice thanks, but no thanks. You know, an interesting script, not the kind of thing we want to do right now. But I was sufficiently encouraged. I mean, I'd taken some screenwriting classes. I, I wanted to learn how to do it. Wasn't really sure where I wanted to go in my life at that mm-hmm. time. You know, I'd majored in physics and done some graduate work, but I had like a lot of would-be uh, physicists and astronomers in the 1980s. I drifted into the uh, burgeoning uh, microcomputer field, was... Uh, developing application software and teaching classes, uh, you know, and using Lotus One Two Three and all of these programs <laughs> that cropped up in the '80s when PCs became popular, and you know, was just kind of drifting around a little bit, and thought I'd try my hand at writing. I had a couple of friends who'd become writers in Los Angeles comedy, uh, primarily, and so, um, you know, I, I wrote this spec script, didn't get accepted. But uh, I was able to take that in another spec script that I wrote and uh, find myself an agent. Mm-hmm. And this is while I was in graduate school in Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University, getting a master's degree in science, technology, and public policy, which was sort of the intersection of politics and the space program, the funding of NASA. It was a very interesting field and something I was, especially in the wake of the Challenger disaster in 1986, something I'd grown right. very interested in. So I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be a NASA policy wonk, but I wanted to keep my hand in writing. <laughs> and I really just, I didn't want to write another Star Trek spec script. I thought if I could get an agent, maybe she could set up a pitch meeting. And you're doing this from D.C. I'm doing this from D.C. Which is cross-country. Yeah, I know. Considering everything is... Right, right. That's hard to to accomplish. So I did find this agent, you know, knocking on a bunch of different doors. Took me like a year to find somebody who was interested in representing me. She was trying to set up this meeting for me to go pitch stories to to the next-gen producers when she found out that they were looking for a new science consultant. And they wanted somebody who had both a writing background and a science background because they absolutely wanted somebody who knew how to talk to writers right. and who understood that the science cannot be the driver of the story. The characters, 
the drama drives the story, right? As as in Gene's famous memo that was read at the top of this podcast. Yeah. He understood that from the beginning, and that was explained to me at the very beginning of my tenure as the science consultant on Star Trek. Uh, that is not to say that science gets thrown out the window uh, if a story, you know, um, is is uh, you know like totally off the, the rails realms of you know <laughs> yeah. the most remote kind of possibility. But my job in those circumstances would be try to find something that works. If what we're saying here, right. what we're doing doesn't really make sense scientifically, well, if you can find something that does that still works within the context of this story that we're telling, great, we'd love to hear it, you know. And the other thing, of course, was technobabble. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would get these scripts <laughs> or pieces of scripts, you know, scenes, whatever, story memos. And the word tech would show up in parentheses, uh, particularly in dialogue, which was my cue to fill in the blank and come up with some term, ideally a real scientific term that serves the need of the story and that particular piece of dialogue, or to invent something, or to use something that's been established in previous Star Trek canon. So, for example, the phasers, the warp drive, the transporters, all of these technologies that clearly don't exist today and, and will not exist for a long time, may never exist, uh, they have an established way of working, they have operating principles, and they have terminology associated with those systems. And Mike Okuda and Rick mm-hmm. Sternbach mm-hmm. Uh, did a great deal of work from the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation to sort of codify all of that and to describe in great detail in their technical manual, which started as, you know, a sort of a reference for the writers of the show, um, how that part of the, uh, yeah. you know, how that part of the scientific and engineering language of the show worked so i stuck very closely to that of course right right well this this and this is an evolution that we're talking about um because the dynamic it's it is it's the dynamic of um um star trek pioneering this adherence to science yes but then as he says in this memo uh, this the 1978 memo mm-hmm. that science can't drive the story right. as much as the scientific audience and the geek audience out there that love star trek yes. for that yeah and sometimes there's a groaner thrown out there and right. sometimes someone in, in the consultant position like you had to do is yeah. stuck with cleaning up the mess as so yeah. to speak or yeah. trying to proactively Throw some solutions out there, or right. even throw throw some ideas out that are based in real science that can yeah. be dramatically yeah, exciting. And you mentioned Mike and Rick's mm-hmm. uh, contributions right. there. I think that's like I in all the ways that the original series caught people by surprise, mm-hmm. right? Even apart from uh, iconic actors and producers who are still trying to pay their mortgage right. <laughs> when they're yes. living legends, yeah, right? Yeah. And one of the dynamics of that was as much as they pioneered, oh, my God, here's a coherent universe, mm-hmm. there's still all the – how did Warp Drive work yes. and all of that. And right. through the movies, but especially what Mike and Rick – Mike and Rick mm-hmm. Sternbach did, tried to preemptively lay down yes. some bits, but not so that it looked like that. We're not telling the writers what to do. We're trying yes. to help you. Well, and again – And you, know, you walking into that kind of dynamic, that, that tension, yes. that creative tension. Yes. Well, when you go back to, you know, Gene's original conception of Star Trek in the 1960s, uh, he clearly wanted to do a show for adults. 
He didn't want to do Buck Rogers. He didn't want to do Captain Video or any of the other things that had been on TV at that no time. No smoke out of the rocket. No, no smoke fins. blowing out of the back end of yeah. the rocket. And, 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 a, and a show that would take on adult subject matter and adult themes, you know, which was a hard thing to do in the 1960s. <laughs> and one way to get those ideas out into the mainstream was through science fiction, where you're telling these metaphorical stories. And it's like, oh, this guy's got, you know, he's got a face that's both black and white well that's a you know that's a maybe not so subtle in today's thinking way of you know taking on the issue of racism which you couldn't really openly discuss um as right. really then as you can now um so but his insistence from the very beginning was that believability mm-hmm. is everything if you're going to do a show for adults you got to make sure that they buy that this situation that you're showing right. them this environment could be real not today, but someday. If you're going to do a show that sh- takes place on a submarine, well, you know that the submarine has to be a sealed environment. It's got to have a life support system. It's got to withstand the pressure of the ocean down to a certain depth and so forth. No swimming pool, no sun deck. No swimming pool, no sun deck. And so um, he, he brought that same sort of sensibility to the design and construction of the Starship Enterprise. He knew that this thing was going to go to a different planet and a different solar mm-hmm. system pretty much on a week-to-week basis. And, of course, that's not possible with the kind of rockets that were available in the 1960s or even anything we have today. So he talked to some scientists and engineers and came up with this idea of warp drive. And, and yes, in fact, you can travel faster than the speed of light uh, if you bend the rules mm-hmm. of general relativity a little bit. And and eventually subspace. Yeah, eventually subspace. Right. Well, the the um, it's we talk about the believability factor yeah. because that's yeah he said yeah. we're not they're not going to believe these yeah. characters if they don't believe the universe they inhabit exactly. But that took in everything from trying to nail down what we do know as real science right. to all the projected science. Yes. Like if in the cage, yeah. we, they yeah. talk about using lasers as sidearms. Yes. Harvey Lynn says, you might want to update yeah. that to something yeah. projected out right. in the future. It's just one example, right? Even though lasers were relatively new back in the 1960s, mm-hmm. you know, that was something that, wow, you know, uh, was a huge technological advance at the time. But once it became real, <laughs> then it's like, oh, well, you know, now we're saying that lasers can do X, Y, and Z. And maybe we're going to find out in a few years they really can't do that. Why don't we call it phaser? You right. know, they came. They tried right. a bunch of different names. Exactly. So it's really the, the consultants, the Joan Pierce's, right, mm-hmm. and the DeForest, yes. uh, uh, Kellum DeForest's of the world are watching show continuity. They're injecting science continuity. Hopefully right. there are some tech advisors, there are science advisors, but it's, it's real science. It's the show's science. It's the show's continuity. It's an interesting mix, and it does take a talent. And what's funny to me is back to our documents here. In 1978, and on the front end of shooting, they're still developing the script. Right. Uh, in fact, Gene, this is he points out here. Uh, Epsilon Nine started as an asteroid-based station mm-hmm. and went to just being a self-contained, you know, plat- antenna platform itself. Uh, but they're still in the midst of hammering out the concepts. Right. It's funny to me how he says, "Now let's not let the science boys. Yeah. We can't let them yeah. drive the story." Right. And then here he is a year later. Saying, "Ooh, ooh, Yesco says uh-huh. we could have some cool. Let's let's make our visual effects to stand out from all the other, you know, G Wiz guys, Star Wars and Close Encounters right. and, and Black Hole. Yeah, let's have our science be as 
accurate. Yes, he says to the to the inch. Right. You know, I mean, it's here. He's saying, let's not um, indulge the science guys here. Let's say, let's indulge them. So it's real. That's 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 the dynamic of a science consultant, right there. Right? Yes, and it can be a fine line. It can definitely be a very fine line between, you know, making sure that the scientific plausibility is there, but not stepping on the inherent drama in the conflict that's at the center of the story. And, you know, exploring some strange new phenomenon in space. You know, we did an episode of um, Star Trek um, Voyager that Lisa Qu- uh, Klink wrote, one of our, one of our mm-hmm. fine writers on that staff. Um, I think it was called Scientific Method. And there oh, was yes. a race of aliens that was, unbeknownst to us, conducting an experiment on the crew. They were more advanced than we are. They were hidden from us, but they were kind of manipulating us like lab rats. And Lisa thought, you know... Could be interesting if while they're doing that, Captain Janeway has stopped the ship to investigate some astronomical phenomenon that she would find particularly fascinating and would, you know, take a few days to study. Uh, Anything that we've discovered recently, anything interesting out there that you've read about or heard about or, you know, so I said, oh, well, let me think about that. Oh, yeah, you know, I was reading something recently about the discovery of a binary pulsar. Two neutron stars, which are these dense, dead cores of stars that spin rapidly and generate these radio pulses. And we've discovered that sometimes these things exist in pairs and they orbit the same point in space and they will eventually collide and form a black hole. Now, if Janeway came across something like that, she'd be like, wow, I got to stop and watch this happen. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So that was a great example of how, oh, we Mm -hmm. can dovetail that into the story. The basic conflict has not been affected. The drama of the story is still the fact that we're being used without our knowledge and probably against our will when we find out that we're being used. But we get to we get to lay in some interesting cutting edge astronomy into the episode and make it an important part of the story. Right. I, it's one of those things that I think, once again, we get into something has to be A or B. It has yeah. to be a choice, and it's a false choice. You can, yeah. you can have both. Right. right. You can have science be an interesting yeah. driver of drama yeah. and be a grounding for what's going on right. out there without it yeah. being totally. And it shouldn't be seen as getting in the way of no. the writer's freedom to create. Yeah. And there are times when, you know, uh, I felt that we'd taken it a step too far. Even though I enjoyed the story and it was a fun episode to watch, mm-hmm. we did an episode in the final season of Next Generation um, where the crew is devolving. We've been exposed to some kind of virus mm-hmm. and we're devolving. Genesis. To- Genesis, yes. thank yeah. you. Um, you know, that was a great Brandon Braga script. He loved turning the ship into a haunted house and horrible things happen. And and that was, you know, that was hanging by the thinnest thread <laughs> of, of scientific credibility. Right. Which which has to do with DNA and the fact that the, there are these segments of DNA that apparently serve no purpose in, in our genome in the present day. They're called introns, sometimes junk DNA. And some people think that, you know, this might just be leftover pieces of genetic material from earlier in our evolution. Right. And Brandon thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if that stuff got activated by some <laughs> virus? And so... Uh, Riker turns into an Australopithecine, and for some reason, Counselor Troy turns into a spider or something. You know, amphibian. Amphibian. Barkley is the spider. Barkley is the spider. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, it's like, well, okay. Well, at least you know we've introduced (laughs) the audience to this interesting idea about genetics that there is this so-called junk DNA. But you know, I, I 
Personally, I don't think that that could happen the way that we described it, even remotely, you know. I know. It was still a fun episode. And once in a blue moon, you know, we would do something like that. And that's okay. The worry, of course, is always that you don't want the viewer to be sort of jerked out of the narrative of the story by seeing something that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. It's kind of like if you're watching if you're watching a movie and there's a can of Coke on a desk, you think, oh, look, Coca-Cola. And you're not in the movie anymore. Same thing with science. Especially if the movie is set in 1880. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And no. so it's the same thing with, you know, science blunders for the scientifically literate right. part of the audience. You don't want to take them out of the story by having them notice something. And at the, at the pace of scientific change, just from the original series, yeah. that's, that's an every... Listen, Andre, we've got to have you come back. We cannot cram all of this, the art and craft of the science consultant into all of one. But I can just say that of everyone out there, I can think of no better... A person to tech the tech. Well, thank you. <laughs> then you, Andre. We have to come back and talk about. We, we've got plenty more in the files. Great. We'll come back and find this. So, would you My come pleasure. back? Absolutely. Okay, great. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All of our documents and your choice to comment are available at Facebook.com/slash The Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.